0: I will read the scripture. It'll also be on the screen. You can turn to it in your Bibles as well. That's Romans 5, 12 to 21. Hear these words from the book that we love. Verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted... And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Because one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's Pastor Evan, who will uh, introduce David.
1: Hey, thanks for being here today. Uh, we, um, on Friday night, had an event called Man Night, uh, where all the guys from the church got together. Uh an awesome time, way too many carbs, way too much meat. Somebody always gets injured, but it's still a fun time to be together. And The reason why we do things like that is because we really value men at this church stepping up, leading their families, living godly lives in obedience to Jesus Christ and His Word. And so we like to get together. We like to play pool basketball for those reasons, but we want to thank the men for everything they're doing at this church, and that's mostly why we do do this. Now, speaking of men, uh, we have several men who are elders in training at our church right now, and Lord willing, in September, they will... Be officially elders now. If you're a member here, that's on you to make sure you vote and say that you will receive them as your elders. But they're going to go through assessment. They've been going through training, and one of those guys is David Gockley, who, true story, was one of the first people ever to come to Liberty Northeast when it was a Bible study in my living room. And so uh, David's been with us for a while. He's a godly man. He loves his wife. He loves this church, and we're excited to have him preach for us here today. So let's invite David and welcome him.
2: Welcome, um, as Evan said, thanks for the introduction, Evan. Uh, my name's David and I'm uh, elder in training here at Liberty. Um, so we'll be in Romans, 12, or Romans 5, 12 through 21, as Brett read today. Um, and since we're jumping into the middle of Romans, I wanted to try and uh, give us a little bit of context for what else is going on in Romans. So at the very beginning of Romans, Paul is talking about his desire to be in Rome, and specifically to preach the gospel there. Uh, With this in mind, it's no surprise that the book of Romans ends up being more or less a summary of the gospel. Um, Paul continues from his introduction and discusses the problem of sin, God's wrath towards the unrighteous, and then in Romans 2, he defends the righteousness of God's judgment and contrast that into Romans 3 with our unrighteousness. Uh, In Romans 4, we see a bit of a shift from the problem of sin to the solution to that problem, uh, highlighting the idea that our salvation is by faith alone, not by anything that we've done. Um, And we see this continue into our passage. Uh, We see Paul contrasting our union with Adam and our union with Christ. He highlights the magnitude of Christ's work and shows how Christ's work can count for us. So while we're in the passage today, I'd like us to specifically focus on our identity in Christ and the freedom that it brings us. Uh, To flesh this out, we'll follow the same basic pattern that Paul is following here. We'll look at who we are without Christ, and then who we are in Christ. Who are we without Christ? Well, Romans 5, 12 through 14 Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So here we're seeing that without Christ, we're living united to Adam under the curse of sin and death. Who are you? It's an important question, but it's not an easy question to answer. It's a question our culture is constantly asking. What will fulfill you? What will make you who you were meant to be? Uh, Culture suggests a lot of potential answers to this. Uh, It could be based on your activity. I do a lot of work around my house. So I'm a DIYer. It could be based on attraction. I'm attracted to women. So I'm heterosexual. It could be based on affinity. I rarely miss watching an Eagles game. So I'm an Eagles fan. It could be based on any number of other things. Race, ethnicity, economic status, what I do for a living, and so on. This all comes from a good place. It's good to know who we are. But Today, let's think about what the Bible has to say about our identity. In Genesis 1, we see this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is a foundational passage about human identity in the Bible. It's not only speaking about Adam and Eve being made in the image of God, but also about all of humanity. But that's not the last thing that we can learn about human identity in the Bible. A mere two chapters later, we see the fall, Adam disobeying God and the immediate consequences that follow, death. Spiritual death as Adam and Eve are forced to leave the garden and are separated from God's presence, as well as their eventual physical death. Just as we share our status as image bearers with Adam we also are united to Adam in his sin. What does that mean, united to Adam in sin? Adam's sin brought death into the world, causing all of humanity to be condemned. Honestly, it doesn't sound like something a loving God would allow, to condemn all of creation because of one man's sin. That doesn't sound fair. It's worth noting that while Paul does recognize that we may feel this way, we see this in his abrupt ending to verse 12 and in verses 13 and 14, he doesn't try and convince us that this is fair. He's already defended God's judgment in chapter two. Paul instead asks us to look at the evidence. Adam did sin. He broke an explicit command that God had given. And as Paul says in the next chapter, for the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. That's why Adam is not with us today. He sinned. And because of his sin, he received the penalty of sin. He died. This is the setup for what Paul says in verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. Paul's point is this. Not only did Adam die, everyone dies. Therefore, if the wages of sin are death and everyone dies, everyone must be united to Adam in his sin. This is because Adam is our representative and because of this, we will also die. I don't like this. It's a hard thing for us to think about culturally. Uh, we don't have good cultural categories for being guilty because of something a family member has done. We live in the United States, and we're a culture of rugged individualists. Our cultural myth is the cowboy, a man alone in the wilderness with no history, maybe even a man with no name, seeking to make a place for himself, by his own grit and determination, outside of any authority greater than himself. That's our cultural mythology. That's who we think we are. And yet, here, we're faced with scripture that tells us that we're united to Adam, the first man, in his error, his sin, trapping us. We should always remember that Christianity is countercultural. Uh, Every week we sit here and we do corporate confession. We confess the ways that we've sinned together. That's not something that really makes any sense to our culture. um, But it does make sense biblically. The Bible's full of genealogies and group identities. And don't just think that's an Old Testament thing or something that's negative. Um, Think about the New Testament. Think about the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. He encounters the gospel, and his response is to share it with his family. And in the next verse, we see this. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. So to take a step back, this is bad news. We're united to Adam and cursed to death. At this point, we might be thinking, hey, I'd rather this didn't work this way. Can't I just be responsible for myself? Adam seems like kind of a lousy representative. (laughs) He's like an overworked public defender. When he's talking to the judge on your behalf, you cringe a little bit, and you wonder, I might have done better myself. But right at the end of verse 14, we see a turn. We see hope. Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. So if you have a church background, you might be thinking at this point, what about Ezekiel 1820? (laughs) (laughs) The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. I'm not guilty of Adam's sin. I wasn't in the garden with Adam and Eve, taking a bite of the fruit. So it doesn't feel fair that I inherit things that I didn't choose for myself. I get that. But we inherit things, whether we choose them for ourselves or not. For instance, whether we like it or not, we inherit things from our parents. And I'm not just talking about the color of your eyes or your hair. Uh, For me, my tendency to eat junk food when I'm stressed, that's my dad, 100%. (laughs) My concern about how other people perceive me, do they really care about me or are they just being nice? That's my mom. I'd rather not have either of those traits to be perfectly honest. But we don't get to choose our parents or what we inherit from them. And taking this a step further, we can also think about things like being prone to heart disease, or high cholesterol, or diabetes, addictions like alcoholism, things we have to watch out for, go to specialists earlier than our friends for, or avoid altogether because we inherited them. We have to admit, whether we like it or not, we inherit all sorts of things. And from Adam, we inherited a sin nature, a broken reality from a failed representative. We see a parallel to this idea in John chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about his need to be born again. Jesus says this, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. This change in nature is what we need. We are flesh, united to Adam, as both literal blood, represent, blood relatives and also spiritual ones. So who are we in Christ? As we sit here in this uncomfortable, culturally foreign idea that we're suffering and we will die because of Adam, We look at verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. This hope that we have in Christ is only relevant because just as we were united to Adam, we can now be united to Christ. We get to trade out the overworked public defender, and not for an opportunity to represent ourselves, but for the top-notch, best-in-the-world defense attorney. Rather than sitting, squirming, wishing we could just speak on our own behalf, we can breathe a sigh of relief as Christ speaks for us. Now, we should remember This isn't just a one-to-one transaction. It's not Jesus swooping in to save the day and undo Adam's mistake. It's not one fruit that was eaten by Adam, repaired with one fruit restored by Christ. Look at what Paul's saying here in verse 15. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God And the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Paul repeats himself in the next verse. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Now, with this in mind we look at that unpleasant culturally foreign idea that we're paying the price, that we will die because of Adam, and we can say hallelujah. We can be thankful that we are not one man standing alone on Adam's representation or our own grit, but rather we're united to Christ and we can rely on him and his work. This is what our Christian identity is. Our Christian identity is not in us, it's in Christ. It's saying, praise the Lord, God made a way that does not rely on me getting it right, does not rely on me for my salvation. All we have to do is say, yes, Jesus, cover me, unite me to you. I'm inherently broken and sinful. I continue to do what is wrong. Even when I want to do what is right, my heart rebels against it. I take what's good and twist it for my own selfishness. But Christ, in Christ, united to Christ, I can rest knowing the Holy Spirit will sanctify me and already knowing that my salvation is assured. I don't need to wait until I have it all figured out, until I can read my Bible every morning, turn to Christ in prayer in every moment of anger, get cut off in traffic and think, man, I should pray for them, they must be having a rough day. I don't need to wait until my motives are perfect. I'm united to Christ today. I'm covered by his work on the cross, by the free gift, and I need not fear death. Death has been conquered. And now, when I die, I'll be going home, where my Father in heaven will look at me and see the righteousness of Christ. So what do we do knowing that we have this assurance? To quote Evan, let's let Scripture interpret Scripture. Let's look at the beginning of the next chapter, where Paul says this. by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There's a risk that if we truly see the enormity of Christ's work on the cross, we may think we can continue in sin. Have you ever been, have you ever had someone be gracious to you when you don't deserve it? What should your response be moving forward? When Brittany forgives me for being a thoughtless jerk to her, my response is not, sweet, I guess I can do it again. My response is to marvel at her ability to model grace to me and to seek to do that for her. When someone can forgive like that, it should inspire love. Remember what we're talking about here. Christ's work is so much more than Adam's sin, infinitely more. Infinitely more than the ever expanding universe in which we're all sitting right now. In The Gospel Centered Life by Bob Thune, he has this wonderful chart that outlines our lives as Christians. As we move from left to right on this chart, it shows how we become aware of our sinfulness. And God's holiness, and the need for the work of the cross to bridge that gap. As we continue to mature in our faith, we move to the right, gaining an ever-expanding knowledge of God's holiness, our sinfulness, and seeing the power of the gospel grow to fill that gap. In the book, Thune talks about our tendency to shrink the cross, and how this leaves us desperately on our own trying to make up the difference. What Paul's warning us against here is a little different, but we can illustrate it using this same graph. After reading the second half of chapter 5, we should be in awe of the magnitude of Christ's work on the cross. This is a good and right response, but we can't stop there we have to let that fuel a growing realization of God's holiness and our sinfulness. If we just see how much was done for us on the cross, we might think that we can go on sinning. You wouldn't want Christ's work on the cross to be wasted. But if we're also growing in an understanding of God's holiness and our sinfulness, the response is relief because we know just how much we need the cross. If you're feeling this tension, I'd encourage you to spend some time uh, in Romans. It really will provide a nice uh, balance of all of these things. Um, I'd also encourage anyone here to spend some time rereading this passage this week. I hit a couple highlights, but there's a lot to learn. Um, If you want to dive deeper into the passage, I highly recommend John Piper's five-part sermon series, Adam, Christ, and Justification. It's really excellent and helped me wrap my head around this passage while I was preparing. But most importantly, rejoice in the assurance that you have through Christ, thanking God for sending his son to be the perfect Adam, our perfect representative. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for revealing yourself. Thank you for having a plan throughout history for our salvation. Even when it doesn't make sense or is unpleasant to us to hear, Lord, you've been working things out since the very beginning in preparation for us, Lord. I ask that you would help us to revel in the beauty of the work of the cross, Lord. Help us to seek you and feel that assurance, but also help us to grow in knowing you, Lord, and understanding ourselves while we do that. ask this in your son's name. Amen.